the truth shall set you free. And so, 2,000 years ago, Jesus parades into Jerusalem. Jesus has recently raised Lazarus from the dead. Now, for those that may not be aware, this is the final act in which provoked the religious leaders of Jesus' day to make the following determination. Here it is. Now we've got to kill him. You see, as we all know, the religious leaders were possessed now with such a deep jealousy and resentment toward Jesus and the following that had been cultivated. The only way they determined they could stop him is by taking his life. They fail to realize, however, that in the sovereignty of God, that they are fulfilling the purposes of God. And on this day of triumphal entry, as the masses lay palm branches on the path, as Jesus enters Jerusalem, they falsely think that Jesus is about to become their earthly king. They falsely think Jesus is about to overthrow the earthly powers of Rome and set up a new earthly kingdom. They falsely think that happy days are here again and we're going to experience political revolution which serves our best interest. And the result is as follows. They praise him with hallelujahs, yes. But they praise him not for who he is, but for who they want him to be. And so Jesus tells his followers a multiple plicity of times in the gospels what it is that he's going to walk through, what he's going to walk in in Jerusalem. Let me cite several examples so that we do not miss the clearness and the crispness of what Jesus has proclaimed. In the book of Mark, Jesus declares, the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, chief priests and teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and after three days rise again. He says, again, in another place in the book of Mark, the Son of Man is going to be betrayed into the hands of men. They will kill him, and after three days he will arise. In the book of Matthew, chapter 16, the scripture records from that time Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed. And then in Matthew 10, we even see that Jesus speaks with a heightened specificity in regard to his crucifixion. Not merely that he would be killed, but the methodology in which he would be killed. When the scripture records, now Jesus was going up to Jerusalem. He took the 12 disciples aside, said to them, we are going up to Jerusalem and the son of man will be betrayed to the chief priests and the teachers of the law. They will condemn him to death and will turn him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified. Jesus is going to Jerusalem to die. Yet, that's not what the people believed. The people believed that Jesus was going to Jerusalem to begin the process of overthrowing Rome. People believed Jesus was going to rule on their behalf. Now, here's a question for us. They missed him, did they not? They missed him in this instance. Here's what I want us to think about for a moment. If they can miss him, then you can miss him. If they can miss him, I can miss him. If they can miss him, then we can miss him. And the question we would ask is, how did people fall into falsehood of such proportions when Jesus had proclaimed repeatedly to his followers what his purpose would be in going to Jerusalem? Well, 
I don't claim that I can answer all of that question in all of its circumference, but, but there's, there's one sociological model that might give us a little bit of insight. It's a sociological model called the echo chamber. Many of you probably have heard that uh, used as a phrase before. What exactly is an echo chamber? Well, it's a person who has access to information, will make a claim, which many like people then repeat over here and then repeat again, often in exaggerated or otherwise distorted form until most people assume that some variation of what's being expressed is true, even if it's not true. And this has been orchestrated many times throughout history. Let's say at your office, you begin to hear that we're all going to be laid off but nobody goes to the boss to ask if it's true. Everybody just continues to circulate the rumor among themselves. And even though it's not true, it becomes true in the minds of those who hear it. Or in a family, when a family says, everybody knows Johnny is daddy's favorite, but honestly, in dad's heart, Johnny is not his favorite. And he doesn't really have favorites. But in the family, that's the narrative that gets repeated. Or if we were to look at the dark side of history and we go back to Nazi Germany and we are aware that Germany had developed what was called a propaganda machine. And that is that you could say something long enough, loud enough, whereby falsehood becomes truth in the minds of people, even though what's being propagated is not true. Echo chambers can exist in variety of forms. By the way, echo chambers can also exist in our own minds and hearts. I had and have a dear family member who has been in church all her life, whom I love deeply, by the way, extended family member, college educated, multiple master's degrees, been in church all her life. And we have the kind of trust with one another that there's nothing we can't talk about. And she shared with me a number of years ago, I believe this and I believe this and I believe this and I believe that. And I looked at her and said, you, do you realize as a Christian that what you're saying actually doesn't line up with the revelation of Jesus in scripture or scripture in general. And she responded, I know, I, 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 but I just do believe those things. It works for me. And I, I process, and this person I love very deeply, so, but, but loved ones, nothing is new under the sun. We've seen things like this flowing through the heart of fallen human nature throughout history. Oswald Chambers once said the following, when men depart from the Bible, God is simply the name given to the general tendencies which further men's interest. And what I'm saying to you, or what, what we see in that model, is that sometimes subjectivism can rule what works for me, which sets people up for what we would call pragmatism. It can even be spiritualized. And when the starting point is what works for me rather than what is true, we can set ourselves up for the very thing that happened on the day of the triumphal entry. Also, excuse me, uh, I, I'm mindful that uh, when we quote C.S. Lewis, uh, that he said something like this, but this is not a direct C.S. Lewis quote. This is my paraphrase of something that he said. And it's a principle. The Christian faith is not true because it works. It works because it's true. I often understand that I 
am a relatively new pastor here in Memphis, but in the decade plus that I pastored in Christ Church Birmingham, I always said to our staff, lead out of reality. Never sugarcoat anything. Lead out of reality. If there's a problem, don't sugarcoat the problem. If there's a problem, never hide it from me. Please, we lead out of reality. Whatever reality is, that's what we lead out of. And I wanted to look up the word reality this week as, as I was preparing to, to share with you this morning. And the word reality, one of its definition is the world or the stage of things as they actually exist as opposed to an idealistic or notional idea of them. And what we're reminded of this morning, when men and women misunderstood who Jesus was and who Jesus is, we're reminded that Jesus is not our mascot for religion, that Jesus is the Messiah of history. Jesus is the God-made flesh. Jesus, as the book teaches us in Colossians 1, is the creator of the heavens and the earth. This is not just anyone. And in light of those truths, it is Jesus himself and the scripture that testify to the importance of Christians valuing what's true. Listen to a brief flyover of several scriptures that accentuate this reality. John 17, sanctify them in the truth, Jesus said. He is praying for us that we be a people who are developed by truth. Your word is truth. Or John 14, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Or Ephesians 4.15, speak the truth in love to one another so that we may grow up in him who is the head, who is Christ. Or out of John 16, when the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all truth. And he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak and he will declare to you the things that are to come. Or out of Psalm 145, 18, the Lord is near to all who call upon him, to all who call upon him in truth. Or Ephesians 6, 14, stand therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth and having put on the breastplate of righteousness. Let's pause right there. When Paul wrote these words to the Ephesians regarding a Christian understanding the metaphor of a Roman soldier putting on armor for the Christian praying and applying different facets of the revelation of God so that you're strong in the Lord. When he referred to fastening on the belt of truth for a Roman soldier, the belt is what held every other piece of armor in its proper place. When a Christian doesn't have truth, nothing else lines up properly. That's the metaphor. First Corinthians 13, 6, love rejoices with the truth. Second Timothy 2, 15, do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. Loved ones, we have been called to be a people of the truth. We are to love the truth. We are to rejoice in the truth. We are to abide in the truth. We are to know the truth. We become people of the truth because our God is truth and we reflect his glory by honoring his truth. Now, many of you already know, Missy and I have spent a lot of time in Asia, not on vacations, but serving. And on one particular foray when we were serving among persecuted believers, I'm having a dinner with a group of Indian Christ followers and several of them were highly educated. And 
uh, I can share that just like North America, when you have a dialogue about Christ with highly educated people, it has a different texture and a fabric. And so I, I heard a sidebar conversation taking place down the, uh, at the end of the table, even though I was engaged more in conversation with the three or four people around me. And I heard one of the Indian Christians at the, toward the end of the table refer to the North American church as glamour church. And it caught my attention. Now, I was not offended about, by that. I, I chose years ago not to be offended. Uh, the scripture says in the last day that love of many will grow cold. The word for love there is agape, meaning the love for God, God's love in the people, people's hearts will grow cold. And one of the symptoms is men and women, Jesus said, becoming easily offended. So I've chosen, Lord, I don't want to be offendable. And so I, I found a way to kind of build some rapport with that end of the table. And I circled back and I said, uh, I won't call him by name. I just said, sir, I said, I heard you a minute ago refer to the North American church as glamour church. I'm not offended, but I would be interested in your thoughts. How did you glean that perspective? And he felt a little embarrassed. I said, please don't. I, I've learned so much from my sisters and brothers here. I would love to learn from you. And then he looked up and he said this. He said, Pastor Paul, it's, it's not what you think. He said, it would be easy for you to think that I made that comment because I've watched some YouTube videos of the Western church with fog machines and fancy lights going off in worship services. He said, that's not what I'm saying. That's a softball. He said, my concern is this. He said, in my country, when the truth is lifted up and people come to know Jesus Christ, we're persecuted. We, we, sometimes our kids can't be educated in the school or sometimes we can't own land or sometimes the village will no longer do business with us or sometimes it's worse, sometimes we're beaten and, and the law enforcement uh, officials will not uphold the law because of their biasness in our communities. We suffer for following Jesus. But he said, in your country, when the truth is lifted up, People will just change churches at times. And there are many who are soft. As I process what he said, I thought about a quote from Os Guinness that went like this. The Bible points out that we are not only truth seekers, but that we are truth twisters. You realize in universities here in North America, numerous universities, in fact, in all probability, some universities that are represented here in this sanctuary this morning that you've graduated from. But many universities across our nation, the following quote hangs and is or is engraved in stone somewhere on the campus, most of the time somewhere on or around the library. Here it is. You shall know the truth and the truth shall set you free. Great verse, right? Jesus' words. But how many of you are aware that context matters? Does, does it not? The, the, the context of the things that Jesus said matters. And if you don't have context for the text, the text can be twisted to mean all kinds of things. And so let's take a moment, look at how Jesus declared that. John 8, he said this, if, it's a conditional clause, 
if you abide in my word, you are my disciples indeed. Now notice what comes next. And you shall know the truth and the truth shall make you free. Os, well, excuse me, Os Guinness, once again, the Bible points out that we're not only truth seekers, but that we are truth twisters. Loved ones, the truth will set you free, and that truth is a person, and he is walking into Jerusalem on this day. Now, as we accentuate the reality that, as the scripture says, that Jesus is the truth, Let's take a moment and reflect on the spirit in which Jesus is the truth. Jesus, one day, he is walking and he sees Zacchaeus up in a tree. You've all heard this story and even sang songs about it since childhood. And he invites Zacchaeus to come down and out of the tree and Jesus says, I'm coming to your house to spend time with you. Now we're aware that in that moment or in those moments, Zacchaeus came face to face with the truth. And Zacchaeus repent, repents of his greed and his lying and his stealing. He's having an encounter with the truth. But loved ones, I want to invite you to take note of the spirit of the truth that he's encountering because Jesus is a Jewish man in Jewish culture and for a Jewish person to invite you to sit with them over a meal signifies that I am honoring your personhood. Notice the spirit in which the truth is imparted. Notice that Jesus enters into fellowship with Zacchaeus, honors the dignity of Zacchaeus, honors the life, the fact that Zacchaeus is indeed made in the image of God and enters into fellowship with him. This is why in Ephesians, excuse me, in Revelation chapter three, when we hear that famous voice or verse when Jesus says, behold, I stand at the door and knock. Anyone who opens the door, I will come in and sup with him and he with me, signifying deepening intimacy and relationship within a Jewish culture. But note that Jesus not only is the truth, but notice the spirit in which truth operates. Loved ones, we're also aware when Jesus and John the Baptist stood for holiness and sexual ethics and for marriage as being between one man and one woman, it's not, it was not popular then, just as it's not popular today. But there's nothing new under the sun, church family. But remember, that cost John the Baptist his life. But do not look, lose sight of the fact of how Jesus encounters persons who are navigating different expressions of sexual confusion or brokenness when we see Jesus interacting with the woman at the well. And he stands with her, affirms that she's in a series of serial relationships. She's on her sixth husband, but Jesus is honoring her dignity as a person. He is honoring the fact that she is made in the image of God. And he even breaks a social taboo of speaking to a woman publicly who also is a Samaritan and as he speaks to her and honors her and the truth is reflected into her life, she is transformed. But do not overlook the spirit in which truth is communicated, loved ones, in the life of Zacchaeus, in the life of the woman at the well. And when Jesus was riding into Jerusalem this day, he also was riding into Jerusalem in a spirit of love because he knew the purpose for which he was coming. 
He was coming to Jerusalem to go to a cross for your sin and for my sin. He is aiming at the cross. And the reality behind that is this, love aims at the truth. Love does not rejoice in unrighteousness, but rejoices with the truth, as it says in 1 Corinthians. Love is glad when truth is spoken in a loving way. Therefore, love aims at the truth. It supports the truth. Love speaks the truth personally. Love speaks the truth doctrinally. Love speaks the truth with compassion. Love speaks the truth because the truth will deliver you. The truth will heal you. The truth will set you free, and the truth its name is Jesus. The Apostle Paul in Ephesians chapter 1, he's writing to the church, and, but he's writing his prayers in the first chapter. And there's a funny word he uses in the first chapter associated with his prayer life. And he prays for the church that a spirit and Greek professors pronounce it two different ways, a spirit of epikinosis, a spirit of epinosis, which is knowledge, a spirit of knowledge would rest upon the church. Now he's not talking about head knowledge per se, because the word epinosis literally means knowledge that gets into our experience. Paul recognizes that it is possible to hear the word of God and it not get into our experience. Paul is aware we need the Holy Spirit's help for the truth of God to get in our experience. Last Sunday, there were three young women who stood here in our sanctuary who were all college students at Asbury University. And you may remember the young lady that was standing in the middle, Jackie. And Jackie shared the following with us, and I paraphrase her words. I struggle with mental health. I struggled with cutting myself. I struggled with fear and anxiety. And these are not her words, but if I may put words that I believe are appropriate for what Christ did in her life. Epikinosis, the knowledge of God, the revelation of God got in her experience when she spoke of the love of God in Jesus Christ that in her words has set her free. Loved ones, the truth will deliver you. The truth will heal you. The truth will set you free. And his name is Jesus. And if they could miss him on the day of tri triumphal entry, then you can miss him. I can miss him. Let us, by your grace, O oh God, not miss you. In Jesus' name, amen. Would you bow your heads? Let's pray for just a moment. Lord, there's an old song that we have sang sometimes in the Christian tradition that goes like this, open our eyes, Lord. We want to see Jesus, to reach out and touch him and say that we love him.
And we recognize that that song that's really framed as a prayer aligns with what the Apostle Paul prayed. We need your help, O God, to see clearly. And so we pray that you open the eyes of our heart to see Jesus and the beauty of his Messiahship, the Christ, the Son of God, the one who took our sins at the cross. And God, help us to turn to him this morning to forsake our sin and turn to Jesus in faith and to be forgiven and to be cleansed and to be made new again. And we pray that you would take the eyes of our heart, draw us to you, O God, and all the wonder and majesty of your grace and the beauties of your mercy, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.